Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Well, my guest is um, Malcolm Pearson, Lord Pearson of Rannoch of the Bridge of Gower, which is a great Scottish title. Malcolm, we were both in the insurance business, you were there earlier than I was, and you were successful at an extraordinary young age of 22. And I came across your name over something called the Savanita Affair, which I want to talk about in a minute. Leading up to you starting that business, you, like many of us in the insurance world, didn't go to university. You went to school, you were given the option, presumably, of the guards and uh, some other sort of useless job like we ended up doing. And we ended up insurance. But Malcolm, great to see you. And um, so how did it all start? When I left school, um, I landed this really unusual job with um, a completely crazy and wonderful Italian contessa, Suni uh, Ratazzi Agnelli. And she was... She was part of the Agnelli family. Gianni Agnelli's sister. There were six of them, but she was one of them. The great Fiat, all that Ferrari Fiat. dynasty. I mean, I knew nothing about it at all. I'd been brought up on Rannoch Moor for all my holidays, and were not anywhere near that sort of world. But um, she was looking. Her children, all six of them, she felt were rather indisciplined, and indeed they were. And so she was looking for a German SS boy to come and um, whip them all into shape. And when a friend of hers, who was a friend of my mother, said, "Oh no, but..." Malcolm's looking for a job, and he's absolutely upright and straight, won't stand any nonsense, etc. Why don't you ask Malcolm to do this job? And so, age 19, I was able to say to my father, um, uh, well, he said, it's got to be the army, the office, or a language. By a language, he meant French, of course. <laughs> so, when I said to him, Papa, thank you very much. I said, it's a language and it's Italian, and I'm going to stay with these people. He wasn't less pleased. Until he discovered who they were. And, of course, then he saw sort of insurance prospects and that sort of thing. And your father was insurance? My father was a, a, a colleague of Harvey Barring. At C.T. Barring. At C.T. Barring. Oh. And, 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 and he really went into the after the first war. He, did, he was a, a pioneer of aviation insurance. Right. Because airplanes were just starting and airlines and things. And having been in the Flying Corps during the war, he knew all the the people who were starting up their national airlines. And so that's where his, his career was in aviation insurance. And so you, you followed in your father's footsteps, went to CT Bowering, yeah. and then after a few years thought they were making more, as I did, but you started even younger. I started at 20, start, yes. We started our business when I was 25, 22 in those days, yes. starting the Lloyd's business. You thought you could make more money than they could. Uh, yes. And uh, you started a firm called Pearson Webb and Springbank. Yes. Webb, Webb, having been the um, sort of manager of the department I was in, and my father was saying how wonderful this department was, and the, the director of the department was really amazing, the board, how clever he was. I knew it wasn't the director of the department at all. I knew it was John Webb, 
and then John Webb and David Springbett, David Springbett's father having been the director of insurance at British European Airways, British Airways and all that, and client of my father, they said they wanted to set off on their own because, believe it or not, they'd been told that they would never be a director of, 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 of the barring companies because uh, they hadn't been to the right schools. So I, when I heard they were setting off together, I said, Whoopi, can I come too? <laughs> and, uh, but, and, of course, the foundation of the business was not just the ones you said, but the Agnelli family business, Fiat. Well, they, 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 they were, um, I mean, the, 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 they were shareholders when we started them. Two members of the family took 10% each. I mean, the capital was £18,000, I mean, it, yeah. it, it was small beer. There was a lot of money in those days. Yeah, yeah, it was not one bad. Yeah. Well, I'd been left 15000 by an uncle in Glasgow, so I, that's when I jumped it into that. And they came along, and, and right from the start, because I'd been good friends with them and you know, been trying to keep their children in order in the summer and that sort of thing, they trusted me. And they knew that you know, quite a lot of their insurance empire was corrupt. And they... They, they sort of vaguely wanted to do something about it. Right. So they said, you know, Malcolm, we'd like you to do this, take this business, I'm afraid, away from Willis Faber. <laughs> and, um, you know, we want you to let us know what's going on, really. And I, I came across this because I was at Willis Faber at the time, and it was the big Lloyd scandal, mm. the Savonita affair. Mm. Uh, and you were at the epicenter of it. Mm. You had spoken earlier about the corruption that existed. Mm. Mm. T t tell us about the Savonita affair, because it really was a seismic moment and a, a, a really brutal <laughs> event. Well, uh, yes. I, I'd been, PWS, my company, had been put in by the, by the, by the Anielis to become a reinsurance broker of their marine insurance company, the SEAT. I, and the SEAT handled all the insurance, the, the Fiat transport insurances yeah. all over the world. And I was starting to do the reinsurances of SEAT. Um, and I went to see a, um, a director of, of Fiat in central Turin, who was the one who put us in touch with all the branches all over the world so that we could go, because they were all corrupt. Um, I mean, the local managers were ridiculous. <laughs> and so Springbet went round one after another of these and sort of straightened them all out. And But this director, Fiat in Turin, when um, a claim had been made for 301 cars, which had caught fire on board the good ship Savanita, en route to the United States of America. And um, these 301 cars had been unloaded because they were totally burnt and useless, um, and were shipped off uh, to the Fiat dealer in Naples, where it soon became clear that there was nothing wrong with any of them, and they were being sold at a 20% discount on, on the open market. <laughs> and this I discovered because this director in Fiat Turin, when I'd been to see him, he didn't say anything. He just wrote on a piece of paper and gave it to me, 301 cars burnt, question mark. Where are they now? Question mark. Um, was there anything wrong with them? Question mark. And so, having got this piece of paper, um, I came back to, to London and I said to, to, to Roy Hill, the underwriter, and I 
got this extraordinary thing on this Richard claim, which you're dragging your feet on. So I'm dragging my feet on it because there isn't a survey report. Could we have a survey? And so that's that's where the the, the Savanita came. And once I knew, I suppose I was a bit priggish, really, but I thought, well, once I know this is a fraud, I, I can't collect it because I asked Treasury Council opinion. I said, they said, no, 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 if you collect that fraud, you will be part of it. You must have nothing to do with it. Anyway, Willis Faber decided that they could collect the claim and they wanted the fiat business back and they went in and collected it. Well, they did in the end, but it was a long story. And and um, and they they did in the end collect 96% of it purely because the market couldn't withstand the pressure of the Willis Faber account. I mean, they, Yeah, it was the biggest account. In yeah, it was the biggest account in the market. And Roy Hill, our underwriter, very, very brave man. He wasn't the normal Willis Faber lead no, underwriter. Yeah. So anyway, it 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 got paid, and um, I was uh, didn't know quite what to do about it. I thought I've got to blow this up. This really isn't right. Um, do I know anyone in the press? But of course I didn't. The press in those days were very didn't talk to them really. Yeah. But I bumped into my friend Aitken, Jonathan Aitken, hadn't seen him for years, and um, I it was just. I thought, well, you're a bit of a journalist, Jonathan. Can you, um, do, do, do you know, um, how do I get this story into the open? Because I was yeah. so, and he came round, read all the files and everything, went to see um, the, 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 the speaker, old Tony Pandey, and he, he fixed the Easter adjournment debate. He gave it to Jonathan. And Jonathan, the Easter adjournment debate, of, I suppose, um, whatever it would be, is 70. Doesn't matter. Yeah. 60, it doesn't matter. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, blew the whole story in Hansard. And then, of course, it exploded. And um, Lloyds then said, well, it's all very well. They set up an inquiry to look into this thing. And the inquiry found against me. <laughs> <laughs> and like idiots, they released it to the press before I could see it. And then the press went wild. So then we had the, 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 the Fisher report and everything. And eventually, a new act of. Parliament. Parliament was passed on these things. And it's been squeaky clean ever since. That was the start of your campaign <laughs> against corruption. Uh, but the, the, fast forward to 1990 when you were made a peer. Mm. What what happened in between? I spent a lot of time actually in education. Um, I, I, became, I was the representative of commerce on the body which validated all the polytechnics. Okay, And as such, it validated... Uh, teacher, all the teacher training courses in the country. And I discovered that the teacher training courses had gone Marxist. Had been, they'd been taken over some time before by, um, by, 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 by Marxist infiltration, actually coming straight from the Soviet Union, um, uh, permeate the whole curriculum with issues of gender, race, and class was a thing. And so I went to Brian Griffin. Brian Griffiths was Margaret. I went to Margaret and I said, look, do you know this is going on? And she said, funny enough, I really suspected me. When I was Secretary of State for Education in 72, I really should have done more of it. Can you get me the ammo? So I got her all the ammo. And um, so she said, right, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is 1990. I'm, I, I'm having a reshuffle at Christmas. I'm going to, I want you to go to the Lords. Um, and as a, you, you will become the Minister of State for Teacher Training in the Lords. And, um, you know, you'll report to me. And I said, thank you very much, Margaret. How much will I see of your 
Um, well, you can have an hour every month, she said. Uh, and I said, yes, and, and, and um, um, what do you want me to do about teacher training? I want you to get rid of it, she said. <laughs> <laughs> I want you. But it never happened because in 1990, she, she, I had just gone into the laws. You were her last uh, I was our last one. Yeah. So I'd sneaked into the laws to go and do teacher training and all that. And um, then the job wasn't there. Uh, so his Hesketh um, said I had to do something. So he put me on the, 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 European, the European Committee of the Lords, and that's where, when I read the Treaties of Rome, and I thought the whole thing. Well, more of that, more of more of that in a minute. I mean, there's no, there is no question that you must be the bravest politician in the Lords. But during, but before, before that time, you you had uh, established the the Rannoch Charitable Trust. Mm. And one of the people who you had worked and been involved with very closely was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, mm. of course. Yes. And how did that happen? In 1983, he was, he'd left the Soviet Union by then. He was writing books in Vermont. But he, in 1983, he was awarded the Templeton Prize for Religion mm. on condition. He came to London and collected the check from Prince Philip for 157,000 quid. And so very reluctantly... He said, oh, okay, I'll go and do it. And he came to London and he um, collected the check from Prince Philip in, in, in this little ceremony. And as he was walking down the palace steps on the way out, he said to a, a flunky alongside him, and it is all right if I publish my acceptance speech, um, which is very short, a samizdat, which is the little tiny bits of free freedom and free literature which circulated in the Soviet Union before. You know, the Soviet Union collapsed. And the flanky replied, Oh no, Mr. Solzhenitsyn, you can't, um, you can't say a word of this. It's entirely private. You're not. And so the, the great man exploded. And he thought he'd been dragged over here, um, under false pretexts to get this check so he could send it to his people with a little tiny thing. This is my acceptance speech to Prince Philip at Buckingham Palace. And this would encourage all his network of, um, an underground network in, in the Soviet Union. Anyway, he exploded and um, said, I'm going back to Vermont this afternoon. I'm not going to go to the Guildhall this afternoon and address, address hundreds of the faithful. I've, you know, I've had enough of the great and the good. And very luckily, someone knew that I, I um, had connections with, with, with Prince Philip through my then father-in-law, Martin Chartres had just yes, given up being the um, the private secretary. So I got on to Martin. I said, Martin, the balloon's gone up. Can you help? Because the great man has been told um, by the palace that he can't publish this, his semi-start. And, 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 and um, Martin said, oh, give me, give me a minute. I don't think Martin even made a telephone call. He rang back two, two minutes later. I was I quite spoken to him. It was perfect. Like, Publish and be damned. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that's, and so then Solzhenitsyn, did do the Guildhall, and the one place he'd always wanted to take a holiday in was Scotland, and he'd never been to Scotland, and and, and, and so we went up on the train. And you hosted him? Two or three days, and, and, and in the wilderness and all that, and it was a wonderful experience. His English wasn't brilliant. Natalia, his wife, could, and you know, in one of a vodka or two, he, was, they, we, were, we were able to uh, converse. converse. And what did you make of him? Well, it's like living, I don't know, with the prophet Isaiah in the house. He had a wonderful sense of humor. He could be irascible. Um, but it was really the only two or three days holiday he ever took. 
um, according to his his family. And we just went out into the wilderness and we walked and and and, and um, he loved it. And and uh, I took him for a walk in the uh, well, slightly amusing. I took him for a walk in in, in the Blackwood of the ancient pine forest. And we came on this huge ant's nest uh, that, that was there. And he looked at it and he sort of poked it and got big. And one of the ants started crawling around in his beard and everything. <laughs> he roared with laughter and he said, socialism works, you see. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you, you kept in touch with him. Um, but it must have been fascinating. And, and in 2007, of course, you were awarded the Henry Scoop Jackson Award yes. for values and vision in politics. Yes. which is uh, an extraordinary achievement. And that is, is presumably based upon the very brave decision that you decided to uh, stand up against the Conservative Party about the European Union. Yes. So where did that, going back, you said you, you'd, in, 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 on the, uh, when we were in government, you looked very closely at all the treaties. Well, I actually made the mistake of reading the Maastricht Treaty in in draft, and there was a wonderful organisation called the British Management Data Foundation, and still they used to take these new treaties and analyse them, and 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 what this they did, they had the first treaty in one column, the next treaty, and so, on. and you could read across across the step of the page, and you could absolutely see where the project was going, which was entirely to destroy national democracies and replace it with. You know the bureaucracy of Brussels and and, and, and the whole project. It, it was absolutely obvious. And so when I saw that, um, I um, I went to Alexander. I got myself put on the, um, the, the the Lords European Committee, and so I was able to look into it. And so I became an implacable enemy of the project of European integration, I suppose, simply because I could see where it's going, and I felt that national democracies were worth defending, yeah, and particularly ours. And um, so, and in okay, 2004, <laughs> the Conservative Party felt they'd had enough of you and expelled you. What was that all about? I mean, this subject, presumably. I can't remember why, why I was I expelled. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Um, well, I think, it, I think it was Brexit. Well, we didn't call it Brexit, then we called it, what was it, 2004, yeah. was it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it was the we we parted company really because I could see that under David Cameron we were never going to do anything about. Well, Cameron the, wasn't leader we, in two thousand four. Who who um who was? I can't um, well, it, the the party was had just come out of the Hague election, so we were into Duncan Smith. Of course, yes. both of them were Eurosceptics, but I think you called upon Conservatives for vote for the UK. Yes, David, David Willoughby at Brook and I has called on Conservatives to leave the Conservative Party and join UKIP. Yeah, which was uh, we just met Farage and all that, and quite a few people did actually um, join us. Quite a few peers, including Caroline Cox, and she was sacked from the party as well, believe it or not, and has been a crossbencher ever since. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I mean that was. I could just see that it was never going to happen, and that the only way we could do it was. I, I spotted Farage quite early as a sort of, you know, a genius really, um, and um, so that's where the whole Eurosceptic thing started. Yes, and you 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 managed to do one incredible thing to be disliked by the Labour benches and disliked by the Conservative yes. benches, which yes. was 
Yes, I, and I, I remember and the Liberal Democrats. every time when I joined, oh yes, well definitely, every time there was anything to do with Europe, you would pop up standing at the back of the Labour benches and say something about Europe and people would roll their eyes and sort of really? say, not, really? not really? again. Not him again. Oh. But, but how yes. brave you were because well, you were uh, a, almost a lone voice and stuck to your guns throughout. Well, there was Peter Shaw, Norman Tibbet. Uh, Max Beloff was well, there were three or four, who, who, but I made most of the noise. I think probably yes. And I, I, I then discovered something. I actually quite like being disliked by liberal Democrats. <laughs> I, ta- I, I take pleasure from it. I'm afraid. It's, awful. I say, it's not very brave. It's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, collectively, personally, they're extremely nice. But when they come come at you all mass in, in 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 the chamber. It's rather fun. <laughs> so let, let, let's talk about uh, the UKIP. And, and I mean, to start with, it, it was a sort of mixed bag of, of, of people who uh, assembled under Nigel Farage. Hmm. It made very little progress in terms of the UK winning elections and things like that, but had a big hit in Europe. What brought it all together? And, and, and how did you European. keep the flame alive until you get to the point where... Um, uh, the, the referendum happens. It, it did actually win the European elections yeah. uh, on uh, proportional representation. UKIP actually won a national election. But it was the first-past-the-post thing that completely screwed it, really. And um, you know, I think in the end, we did manage to get the message out to, to the point where, well, you know, it's just happened. But the party itself, who were who the driving forces? Oh, N- Nigel, Nigel was always the yeah. really. And there were other good people in it, and David Willoughby and I, you know, yeah. helped it a bit and all that, I think. And, um, I mean, the sort of really serious Eurosceptics like David Stoddart, number one, Peter Shaw, Max Bell, they never actually joined UKIP, but they were very strongly. Um, you know, we, we knew we weren't idiotic in the Lords. Um, but of course, the Conservative Party in those days was you know, absolutely wedded to the damn thing, and the Liberal I mean, Labour—they they all were really. And it is quite—it's—it's you know, it's rather nice that the, the King has just signed the, um, the, 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 the bill that takes us out altogether. Yeah. We are now out of the damn thing. And I mean, you look back on this, not unsurprisingly, with with um, great pleasure. Yes, yes, I think I've been very lucky. And how do you, how how do you intend to keep the vote honest? Because clearly, there's a lot of backward pressure, um, particularly from the civil service, to yes. Um, yes. not carry out the will of the British people, as, as you as some people would describe. Yeah, that, that really that really should be. I mean, the blob and everything that Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying and so on. And, and I think 98 percent of civil servants didn't want Brexit. So even if you get it through in the front line, you get it through Parliament and everything, you're then faced with, as we now see, um, you know, endless obfuscation, etc., etc., etc. But I, I think it, I, I think it will go through. I think, I, I think, I don't know, I don't know. I think it will happen. I don't think they, I don't think. Um, also, because they know now that people are looking at them in a way that they didn't before. Um, you know, just the civil servants who couldn't touch it. But I'm about to start asking questions of the names of these civil servants. I'm going to get them into Hansard on the record, or well, the government won't answer. But I think once you start saying, well, who are actually these people? Who are the human beings who are frustrating this thing? You may get somewhere. We'll see. It should be quite fun.
Why did you resign from UKIP in 2019? Gosh, why did I resign from... Um, I can't remember. Uh, uh, no, I can't remember. David Willoughby and I, I think, resigned on the same day. Um, I think we just felt it had run its course, and, and, and um, I think it may have been doing something. And the job was done. Yeah, the job was done, really. And now, now there's a... And sort of, they were spoiling like hell, yeah. you know, and, and in amongst them, and I couldn't be bothered, really. Yeah. And, and now, now, now you sit as an independent, but presumably we hear of various other Eurosceptic parties starting. Are you not inclined to... No, I think I'm, I'm too old now, really. Um, I don't, there's, there's this reform thing, isn't there, of Nigel's, and I, I don't know. I've never... I, I've never been a party political animal. Party politics bores me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's um, what is the word? It's yeah. It's just it's uh, it's sort of tribal, really. Yeah. <laughs> Going back, um, I, because you are uh, remarkably brave and okay. certainly stand up. What you're doing? I mean, the part part of UKIP was described as being racist. Well, I don't know that it was. I, I've never. I mean, I'm colorblind. I've always been colorblind. I simply don't see the difference. And um, I, I don't think there may have been, of course, UKIP, yes. I mean, UKIP had quite a lot of what they call right-wing elements in it, and probably there were um, racists in there, but they weren't assisted by me or they weren't my friends or anything like that. I mean, I, you know, I just, as I say, it bores me. I don't see the difference. Well, Malcolm, you, you've never been frightened of putting your head above the parapet, <laughs> that's for sure. And yeah. Controversy has um, uh, been part of your life, but it's uh, built on by a very firm and virtuous belief. And I'm really grateful for you for mm. sparing the time. Thank you very much. Well, the virtuous belief, I mean, it comes you know, because I did have this religious experience when, when I was having an operation and the, um, the anesthetic failed. Uh, but the paralyzing drug continued in the three-hour operation. And in those, I mean, lots of people have had them. It's not unique. But in those, you either die or you go somewhere rather wonderful, which strengthens you. And that did happen to me in 1977. And it changes everything, really. So if you say brave, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's brave or not. But it does, it makes you less worried about the standards of where we are now. Well, I think anybody who <laughs> takes on the... And, and sticks their neck out is is often brave in politics. But um, Malcolm, thanks very much indeed. Not at all.